0: Earlier this week, I was reading in the book of 2 Corinthians, and as I got to chapter 13 of this book, I I saw that Paul had some very strong words for that church that he loves. He's been addressing a, a host of issues in the Corinthian church for a couple of books. It seems like whatever could go wrong at the church in Corinth did go wrong, and yet it also is abundantly clear that God was not finished with them. And as an act of grace, he sent Paul to them to call them to repentance. And listen to what Paul writes to them in 2 Corinthians 13, verses 1 to 6. He says, This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others. And I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives now in the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. And then verse 5. Examine yourselves. To see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves that, that Christ Jesus is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. Paul calls the church, in light of the, the brokenness they've expressed, in light of the sinfulness that's present within them, to examine themselves to test themselves, to see whether or not they are truly in the faith. Because if you are in the faith, if if Jesus is in you, it will show up in your life in some way. And so Paul's asking them, in the midst of your failure, in the midst of, of all this brokenness that's taken place in the church, is there any evidence of gospel transformation? Is there any evidence in you that Christ is still at work? Corinth wasn't evidencing spiritual maturity. But was there any remnant of the work of Christ in their life that could give them hope that he was not finished with them yet? Would they find those places where they had not been faithful to Jesus and repent with the goal of walking in greater faithfulness as his people? Now listen, while I pray that as a church, Here at Bayleaf Baptist Church, we never find ourselves in the same position that the Corinthian church found themselves in. I do think Paul's encouragement here is worth considering, especially in light of the section of Joseph's story that we will look at today. Christians are called to examine themselves. We are called to examine ourselves. We're we're to set aside time. To consider the work of the Lord in our life and how we are doing on our journey toward Christ's likeness In daily quiet times, at camps or retreats, in season of prayer and fasting, every time we sit before the mirror of Scripture, we are to take stock of, of God's work within us and of those places in our lives that may need more refinement for the glory of God. If one of the most important goals of the Christian life is to look more and more like Jesus, at some point along the way, we should take a moment and check and see if if we are indeed becoming more like him. This morning, as we turn to Genesis 42, we have an opportunity for this kind of examination. Now listen, I know examinations can make us nervous. That's why we don't go to the doctor because we're afraid what he would bring up about our bodies. We don't go to the dentist because, hey, what, what tooth is he gonna try to pull today? But I don't want us to approach the examination of Scripture in the same way as we treat those other examinations. I want us to see the examination that God offers to us and the power of the Spirit through His Word as a means of grace. Knowing that, the more we become like Jesus, the more joy we will fill in this life the the more we walk in faithfulness the happier we will be and more than that whatever expectation whatever part of our life has not aligned with Jesus we have the empowerment in Christ to walk in faithfulness when God calls us because God has not called us he's not given us expectation without empowerment praise be to God as he offers the standard as he commands the standard of Christ's likeness in our life, he has given us victory in Jesus and the power of the Spirit to do exactly what he has called us to do. So following Paul's encouragement this morning, as we look at the life of Joseph, let's examine ourselves, church family, to see how we are doing in the pursuit of Christ's likeness. Now, as Genesis 42 begins, the famine that Joseph predicted has reached all the way to Canaan. It's reached Joseph's family. And Jacob sends 10 of his sons, the 10 who betrayed Joseph, to go to Egypt to buy grain. Because that's the only place you can get it. And in verse 6, we finally see the moment that we've been waiting for, the moment when Joseph and his brothers meet after 20 years in very different positions. What would Joseph do? Is he about to rain down revenge upon his brothers? Or will he have another reaction to their appearing? Let's see how this interaction unfolds in verses six to 17 of Genesis 42. Here's what the word of God says. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and he recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and he spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said, and they said from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And then Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, no, you're spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come just to buy food. We're all sons of the one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it's, it's the nakedness of the land that you've come to see. And they said, no we your servants are 12 brothers the sons of one man in the land of Canaan and behold the youngest is this day with our father and one is no more but joseph said to them it is as i said to you your spies and by this you shall be tested by this you shall be examined By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your younger brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, may be examined. Whether there is truth in you or else, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all in custody for three days. The brothers come without any warning no dream here to give Joseph time to prepare. They come and appear before him. And can you imagine all that Joseph must have felt? Can you imagine the, the wave of emotions that ran through him when he saw his brothers bowing before him, seeing the ones who caused him so much pain, seeing the ones who caused him so much suffering now kneeling before him? They didn't recognize him, but he certainly recognized them. Now, initially, jo- the Bible tells us that Joseph treats his brothers harshly. He treats them like strangers and, and questions their motivation for coming to Egypt. But in the midst of this initial reaction, in, in the midst of this overflow of emotion, something happens. Look at verse nine. He's accused them. He's challenging them. And then... Joseph remembers the dreams. He remembers the dreams. He dreamed of his brothers bowing before him just like they are doing right now. And I believe God brings these dreams to him once again to remind him that nothing happening right here in this moment is an accident. Everything that's happening is under the providential control of God. Joseph doesn't have the luxury of acting in a self-serving way because he is acting even now in the service of the Most High. And so instead of acting in anger, Joseph seeks to act in wisdom. And he decides to examine his brothers, to test them, to see if they've changed to see if they are worthy of his help and getting access to the provision that God has secured in the midst of this famine. And so he, he orchestrates a series of tests to give them a chance to evidence that over the last 20 years, something in them has changed. And these tests unfold over the course of Genesis 42 through Genesis 44. And there are essentially four kinds of tests. That Joseph gives his brothers to see if they've changed. The first test is a test of life. The first thing that Joseph wants to know is whether or not his brother and his father are still alive. Are are Benjamin and Jacob still alive? Or did these brothers remove them the same way they tried to remove him? Because they saw them as a threat to getting what they wanted. Joseph's brothers were brutal. And we see that not just in their interaction with Joseph himself. If you go back to Genesis 34, you see they have a history of destroying people. Simeon and Levi slaughtered all the men of a city. And their brothers joined them in plundering that city because of what one man in that city did to their sister Dinah. And with just that one instance and what they did to Joseph, it's clear that it's not outside of the realm of possibility they would kill their other brother and their father as well. The brothers claim here that Jacob and Benjamin are still alive, but Joseph wants proof. And so in verses 14 to 15, he says, you got to bring him here to me. I want to hear from Benjamin's own mouth that he obviously is alive and His father is alive. Now, here is the question that Joseph is is asking of his brothers with this first test. Do the sins of your past still characterize your present? Do the sins of your past still characterize your present? Are you the same violent, unrestrained men that, that treated life so carelessly? Are you the same violent, careless men that you were 20 years ago when you threw me me in that pit and then sold me in to slavery? And there's an added dimension to this first test that leads to the second test. The second test is a test of sacrifice. Initially, Joseph says he will only send one brother back to get Benjamin as proof that he and Jacob are still alive. You see that in verses 16 and 17. Choose, you guys choose one of you to send home and bring, my, uh, bring your brother back, Benjamin, while the rest of your brothers will remain confined. I'm doing this to test your words. He puts them in prison for three days, giving them time to choose the one that will go. But they can't make a decision. And when it becomes clear that they can't make a decision to send one back, Joseph, because he fears God, even lessens the requirements. And we see this in verses 18 to 20. On the third day, Joseph said to them, okay, now do this and you will live because I fear God. He knows that if none of the brothers go back, it's possible that all the family could die because of the famine. So so since you guys can't choose one, here's what I'm gonna ask you to do. If you're honest men, let one of your brothers remain. Confined where you are in custody and the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and then bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. But none of his brothers volunteer to stay behind. Instead, they see everything that's happening here as judgment upon them because of what they did to Joseph. Look at verses 21 to 23. They said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the distress of his soul. When he begged us, we did not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. Reuben says, I told you not to sin against the boy. You didn't listen. So now what's happening right here is a reckoning for his blood. They were paralyzed by their guilt. And so Joseph makes the decision for them. He imprisons Simeon and sends the rest on their way. But here's the question that Joseph is asking through this test of his brothers. Have you learned... To sacrificially love one another? Or are you still consumed with jealousy and, and self interest? Would you sacrifice your freedom for the sake of your family? And that leads to the third test, which is a test of trust. See, Joseph knew that his father did not trust the sons of Leah, his brothers. They caused havoc wherever they went. And that's why Jacob sent Joseph to check on them and why they called Joseph a spy. What about now? What about 20 years later? Does Jacob trust any of these guys to bring back Benjamin and keep him safe? Would Benjamin as a grown man trust these brothers to go with them on a journey without any protection? Now we've already had an answer to this. In verses three to four of Genesis 42, we we see why Jacob only sent 10 of the brothers. He hears that there's grain in Egypt. So 10 of the brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, verse four. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Even though another brother meant more grain, to be able to take back to to care for the family Jacob will not risk sending Benjamin with these brothers it might be why they couldn't choose one to go back on behalf because they knew that Jacob wouldn't send Benjamin with any of them there was no good choice to make the question here the question here that Joseph is seeking to to answer through this test is whether or not there's been noticeable change in the life of these brothers. Do do those closest to them recognize that something has changed in them that would cause them to be entrusted with Benjamin's life? And notice, at the end of 42, the sentiment is the same. In verses 36 to 38, when the brothers return to Jacob and they tell them all that's happened, And they say, the only way we get Simeon back and the only way we get grain is if Benjamin goes with us. Here's how Jacob answers. You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. Reuben said to his father, kill two of my sons if I don't bring him back to you. Put him in my hands. I'll bring him back to you. But he said, my son will not go down with you for his brother is dead and he is the only one left. What does that tell you about Jacob's opinion of these brothers? If harm should happen to him on the journey that you're about to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow all the way to Sheol. Does your father trust you? Joseph wants to know. And finally, the fourth test is a test of truth. Joseph sends the nine brothers back with lots of grain, provisions for their journey. And surprisingly, he also puts in there the money that they had brought to pay for the grain. Look at verses 25 to 28. Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give the donkey food at the lodging place, he saw his money and he said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is. And at this, their hearts failed them. And they turned, trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done? Despite the claims that they were honest men, Joseph knew that his brothers were liars. They tried to cover their misdeeds. Remember what they, they told their father after they sold Joseph into slavery. They took this coat that was a symbol of their father's favor and they tore it up and put blood on it and told him that some animal must have destroyed him. But now Joseph wants to know, in this moment of moral dilemma, if they will choose to tell the truth, if they will choose to live righteously, What will they do with this money once it is returned to them? Will they live in a manner that's pleasing to their God? Four tests that Joseph gives to see if his brothers have changed. And honestly, the results are kind of mixed. It's kind of discouraging to see how little has changed in the lives of these brothers over 20 years, at least at first. Now, the brothers don't kill their brother, and they don't kill their father, but they haven't really evidenced an appreciation for the life of others. Just look at Reuben's pitch to Jacob when he's trying to get him to let Benjamin go back to Egypt. Okay, you don't trust me? Kill two of my sons. Take their life if I don't bring him back. I was going to preach this message on Father's Day because, man, what what a dad. If I don't bring your son back, have two of mine. Kill him. That's not a great appreciation for life. And they, they do, though, largely tell the truth in this section of the story. They, they tell Joseph the truth when he presses him. They tell their father the truth when they return with the money. But they don't willingly sacrifice themselves at first for the sake of their family. Joseph is the one who has to choose who stays behind. And it's clear up until the point where Benjamin has to go back to Egypt because the famine is so dangerous for Jacob's life and the the life of his family that Jacob does not trust these brothers with the life of his favored now son. But here's what I hope is encouraging to us. And here's what I hope we will take away from this part of Joseph's story. In spite of their failures, In spite of their continued 20 plus year failure, God still demonstrates mercy to these brothers through Joseph. In spite of their sin, in spite of their unworthiness, in spite of the fact that they should be condemned, God delivers them from the famine and from judgment through the mercy of their brother and through his love for their father and his brother. They were saved even though they didn't deserve it, even though they failed the tests. And I hope that even as I say those words, this story is is offering echoes of another story, a greater story that this story is meant to point us to, the story of Jesus. Because remember, that's the point. What's happening here in Genesis 42 is, is pointing us to the greater story of Jesus. And think about this. Jesus is our ultimate judge, And he stands over all of creation with unmatched authority, and he is the only place that we can go to find the salvation that we need and are longing for. And listen, if we had to prove ourselves worthy of his help, if if he examined us, if he pressed us, if he tested us to see if we were worthy of his salvation, friends, we would utterly fail. We're We're just a mixed bag of results. We are wholly unworthy, and yet we need him. We need his help. We're desperate for what he alone can give. And Jesus, praise be to our God, in spite of our unworthiness, has chosen to show us incomparable, unimaginable mercy, not just as our judge, but also as our older brother, Our true and greater brother. He looks upon us with compassion in the midst of an even greater betrayal that we betrayed him with. And he sees beyond our brokenness. He sees the Father's plan of redemption and he offers us salvation even when we did not deserve it. Remember the gospel story here, church. Jesus was faithful to his Father, he was examined. He was tested and he was declared righteous. But here's the glorious provision that God has provided for us in Christ. From that declaration of righteousness, Jesus has prepared a storehouse of righteousness in him for salvation of all those who call upon him in faith. Hear me today. Today. If our salvation was dependent upon us to pass a series of tests, we would be lost. But praise be to God that our fitness for heaven is not based on our faithfulness. It is based on the faithfulness of Christ, and he is faithful. And now because of that work, because of the work of Jesus, we can look differently at the implications of Joseph's story for our story, because we can, we can look at Joseph's story through the lens of the gospel. Because Joseph's story points us to Jesus, we can think differently about the implications of Joseph's story in our life today. But the examination that scripture offers through Genesis 42 to Genesis 44 doesn't have to be a burden, but rather can be a means of grace. If we treat it this way, if we treat it as if Jesus, our older brother, is speaking these questions to us. Not to to evidence our worthiness. He already knows these things. But to help us evaluate where we are on our journey toward Christ-likeness. To help us evaluate where we are on that path of faithfulness that we've been called to and are empowered to walk. So let's take the moment here with a gospel lens, not to feel condemnation, not to feel a burden of walking and these expectations in our own strength, but with full knowledge of the empowerment that God has given us in Jesus and the spirit working within us to take stock of where we are in our journey toward being like Christ. And I wanna credit Pastor Vodi Bacham here for helping to cultivate these questions in his wonderful book, on the life of Joseph. And here are the questions, again reiterated, that I want us to use as a moment for examination, following Paul's encouragement. The first question for us to consider this moment as the people of God, do the sins of our past still characterize our present? Remember, that was the the first question that Joseph was really asking through that first test. As I read this story, it's really striking how little has changed. How how much an event that happened 20 years before this moment still plays into everything that happens. Because of what these brothers did to Joseph, Jacob does not send Benjamin. The other brothers feel enormous, paralyzing guilt, and Joseph feels anger. Even though it happened 20 years ago, everything feels very fresh. Like it just happened. Maybe you're there today. Maybe there's something that's happened in your past that still weighs heavy in your life. Almost to the point where you're paralyzed. You're you're unable to move forward in your walk with Christ. And I want you to hear me this morning from the promise of scripture. God does not want us to live in guilt or condemnation. God wants us to live in freedom and reconciliation. But here's the problem. Unless our sins are covered, unless we let Jesus deal with the sins of our past, they will hover over us and weigh us down. That's why we always need to remember the gospel. If you have been saved by Jesus, his blood covers all, all, all. Turn to your neighbor and say all. His blood covers all of your sins. Not just the small ones, not just the medium-sized ones, all of them. And you do not have to live in the guilt of those sins any longer. You don't have to live in the condemnation of that sin any longer because Jesus took that upon himself. Listen, you may have to endure the consequences because there may be consequences in this life, but you don't have to be defined by that sin anymore because Jesus has declared you forgiven. And listen, when the enemy does try to bring these past sins up, he loves to do that so that we won't be faithful, so that we won't be bold, so we won't let the glory of God shine through our brokenness. When you feel paralyzed by something that happened in your past, you speak the biblical truth that is promised you in the book of Romans chapter 8, verse 1, that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You remember that there is no failure too great for the victory of Christ on the cross to cover. And in fact, that failure may be the very thing that God wants to shine brightest through in your life. Think about the Apostle Paul. I'm always struck when I get to Philippians chapter three because he's writing to the Philippian church and he's telling them, hey, listen, don't put your stock in your actions. Don't don't trust in your work to put you in right standing before God. And here's how I know that. Here's how I know that, that trusting in your own work won't work. I was the best Jew. I was the best Pharisee. I was zealous to the point where I was going around putting Christians in jail. I stood by. I helped organize the murder of Stephen. And yet one day, the very one I was persecuting appeared to me and asked me, why? Why, Saul, are you persecuting me? And in that moment, my life forever changed. And I realized that the only way that I could have right standing before God was not through my actions, not through my devotion to some religious rituals. It was only through the work of Christ. Now, what's, in, what's encouraging to me about that is that Paul was willing to remind the Philippian church of where he failed. Look at my failures. I trusted in the wrong thing. He didn't try to hide that. Why? Because he allowed the gospel to grab a hold of his heart. And to allow the, the forgiveness, even through his greater failures, to shine through for the sake and the benefit of the Philippian church. Here's how we know the gospel has our heart, church family. When our failures of the past don't paralyze us, but we see them as an opportunity to brag on the forgiveness and the grace and the mercy of God. Are you defined? By what's happening in the past to where you're paralyzed, or there's there's still echoes of that same sin in your life today? Or are you operating in forgiveness and grace to the point where even the things that used to embarrass you now are just opportunities to brag on our good God? Are you living under the weight of past sin? Have you ever given your life to Jesus? Because if not, that will be a burden that you will carry now and for all of eternity. So would you today let him take that burden for you? That's what the cross represents. Him taking the burden of our sin, him taking the condemnation of our sin upon himself so that you could walk in freedom now and for eternity. And if you have, Remember that he's got it. Remember that he, he has taken that burden so that you don't have to live under its weight any longer. Do the sins of our past still characterize our present? That's a great question for examination. It's a great question for us to ask of the Lord as we sit before his word to see if we are growing in Christ's likeness. A second question that we could think about today as the people of God, have we truly learned to love one another? To love one another sacrificially. Certainly we could agree that sacrificial love is an evidence of spiritual maturity, of Christ's likeness. The brothers sacrificed Joseph for their own benefit. They loved themselves more than they loved him, more than they loved their father. And that selfishness was destructive. It had a huge effect on the life of their family, on the life of Joseph, even though God redeemed their sinful actions for his glory. In fact, it's not until Genesis 43 that we see any advancement in the life of these brothers towards sacrificial love. And it comes through Judah, of all people, as he guarantees Benjamin's safety, the the initial provision that the brothers brought back has run out and they've got to go back to Egypt. Jacob is gonna send them and they say, Jacob, if we go back without Benjamin, we're not coming back. You've got to send him. And he's resistant. But then listen to how Judah appeals to his father. Verse 8, send the boy with me. This is 43. Send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. This is different. Not kill my sons. What does Judah say? I will be a pledge for his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. And Judah proves true to his word. Later in the story, when Joseph orchestrates a series of events that would have kept Benjamin and sent all the brothers back, Judah says, no, I can't do that. I promised my, my father that I would not return without him. If someone's got to stay, let it be me. Finally, a glimpse of change. Finally, an, a glimpse of sacrificial love in our text. Let me ask you this question. Do we love one another sacrificially? It's the people of God. Do we love one another sacrificially? Remember what Jesus said in the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. How? Just as I have loved you. How has Jesus loved us? Incredibly, sacrificially. He laid down his life for us. We are to love one another as Christ has loved us. And by this, this kind of love that we have for one another, they will know, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. How are we doing? How are we doing? Listen, in a world that prioritizes the self, in a world that prioritizes radical individualism, in a world that laughs at destructive language, applauds destructive language being thrown at people who were created in the image of God. One of the most important things we can do for the sake of the gospel, one of the most important things we can do evangelistically is to love one another. It's a a clear fruit of the work of the Spirit within us. How are you doing? Are you loving the people in this room? Are you loving even your enemies like Christ? Third question. Do those closest to us notice true gospel change? Now again, this relates back to the test of trust. Joseph wanted to know if Jacob trusted any of his brothers, if he, As the father had seen true change, transformation, fruit in the life of these brothers. And of course he hadn't. Which is why he didn't trust them. They can say they're honest men all they want. But Jacob knows better. Listen, it's easy to fake faithfulness to God for a few hours on a Sunday. But what does your wife say? What does your husband say? What do your kids say? What do your neighbors say? What do your coworkers say? What does the algorithm that tracks your activity on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook say? Have the people around you noticed a difference? Because friends, if Christ is in us, It's got to be noticeable. And finally, are we actively choosing to live in righteousness? In our text, there are several moments of moral dilemma. What are we going to do here? The money's been returned to us. What do we do with this money? What do we tell our dad? What do we tell Joseph and his, his key people around him when we return to Egypt? Do we try to hide this, protect it, or do we tell the truth? Now listen, Joseph knew they were going to have to come back to Egypt. This is only a year or two into the famine, and we had seven years of famine. So they were going to have to come back and tell somebody about the money what were they going to choose knowing they were gonna have to stand before him in judgment once again? Church family, one day, we will stand before Jesus as our judge. And we live in a world that puts dilemmas like this in front of us all the time. Are we evidencing in our life Righteousness. Are we choosing the things that please God more than the things that displease God? If you, if you look back over the course of your life, now we're not talking about perfection. We're talking about growth. Everybody with me? There are, going to be, there are going to be moments where we dip down and when we, we do choose the things of this old world because we live in a broken and fallen world. But on the whole, from that moment that you accepted Jesus to today, is there evidence of growing Christ-likeness? Is there evidence of, of choosing the things that please him more than the things that please ourselves? In a moment where you could have chose something that, that fills the desires of the flesh, You had that moment of of the Holy Spirit bringing conviction and you chose instead of that to choose the thing that brought honor and glory to Jesus. Is there evidence of that in your life? Is there evidence of spiritual maturity and growth in your life like that? If we're walking in health, if we're walking in faithfulness, there should be. Our desire should be to please King Jesus above everything else. Does that play out in your life? Let's examine ourselves, church family. Not so that we can sit in condemnation. Not so that we can sit in guilt. Hear me today, if you are in Christ, you are free from that. But rather, maybe sit in conviction. Maybe this is a moment for God to Stir your heart and awaken your heart once again to love the things that He loves, reminding you where true joy is found in faithfulness and Christ's likeness. Have any of these questions brought a red flag to your spiritual life? If so, repent. Come, come to Jesus and find grace upon grace that is greater than our sin. He still is our merciful older brother who desires to dispense grace on his family. Come to him today. And if you're not in the faith, if you've, you've never given your life To Jesus, I do want you to feel the weight of that burden and to recognize that you cannot carry it and you cannot remove it. The only place for that that weight of sin to be lifted, the only way for you to, to meet the righteous requirement, the expectation that God has for us to get into heaven is through Jesus, But here's the promise of Scripture. If you repent and believe in Christ unto salvation, you can come under his covering. And he will remove that burden because he's taken that burden. He will remove that condemnation because he's taken that condemnation and give you life. Oh, that you would respond to that invitation today and that we as the people of God would remember what God has done for us in Jesus. Wherever you are, would you bow your heads? Spend some time asking God to help you know how to respond faithfully. Are you still living in captivity to the sins of your past? Oh, but you would repent of that today. Trust the sacrifice and victory of Christ? Are you loving others sacrificially so that they can get a glimpse of the way that God has loved us in Christ? Do those around you notice true gospel change? The way that you interact, speak? are you actively choosing to live in righteousness? These things should be true and growing in truthfulness in our life if we are walking in Christ. But remember, we are able to do this because of the work of Christ within us. And in moments where we fail, we can run to him and find provision, mercy, and grace. Examine yourself. And then again, if you don't know Jesus, one day you will stand before him as judge. And one day you will be examined. He is the only place to find salvation. And the only way you will be fit to receive the reward is if you are in Christ Would you give your life to him today? Oh, Father, would you help us respond in a way that brings you glory and honor? Find us faithful because of our time before your word today. We pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us this week at Bayleaf. For more information about Bayleaf Baptist Church, visit our website at bayleaf.org.